One of the most important aspects of Bible study is making sure that we don't take verses out of their context and that we interpret them properly in the context in which they were written. Now that is a good principle for all of Bible study, but it is especially true when it comes to promises in the Bible. Maybe some of you remember a song that was very popular many years ago. It's an older song. Every promise in the book is mine. Every chapter, every verse, every line. Well, I'm sorry to burst your bubble, but that is not true. Every promise in the book is not yours and is not mine. When God promises the children of Israel living in their land that if you obey me, I will always give you rain for your crops, you can try to claim that promise all you want, but there are times you have to turn on the sprinkler. You're not always going to get rain no matter how obedient you are. So it is especially true when it comes to promises in the Bible that we make sure we take them in their context. We always want to make sure if we are claiming a promise that we are claiming the promise in the right way. Otherwise, what happens, and it is tragic, is sometimes people become disillusioned with God, disillusioned with God's Word, because they say it isn't true. I claimed that promise, and it didn't happen. Well, sadly, what they sometimes claim is not something that was written to them, for them, or about them. So again, I want to stress that it is always important to take verses in their context. But that is especially true when it comes to promises, and we'll see that the importance of that principle in the text that we're going to consider for this message. So let's turn once again to the fourth chapter of the book of Philippians, or the letter of Philippians, for our time of study in God's Word. Philippians chapter 4. We saw in the last message that in these final verses of Philippians, the Holy Spirit is using Paul's life to illustrate the principles taught in the earlier verses of the chapter. For example, in verse 4, Paul exhorts the Philippians to rejoice always. And then in verses 10 through 12, he indicates that he rejoiced always, regardless of his circumstances. And then in verse 6, he exhorts the Philippians not to worry, be anxious for nothing. And then in verses 10 through 12, he indicates that he wasn't anxious about his circumstances. Instead of being anxious, he experienced the peace he talked about in verse 7. Then in verse 9, Paul exhorts the Philippians to follow the formula, the pattern of life that leads to the assurance that the God of peace is with you. And then in verses 10 through 12, he indicates that he had the confidence that the God of peace was with him. So Paul modeled what he taught. He was a content man. But lest you get discouraged, remember that Paul says in verse 11 that he had learned to be content. That's an important term. He learned. It wasn't automatic for him any more than it's automatic for you or for me. He had learned it. That encourages me because it tells me that we can learn to be content. It's not a natural character trait for any of us because we're naturally selfish, naturally self-centered, and our society feeds that, our culture feeds that. But contentment can be learned. 
Evidently, from Paul's wording, he wasn't like this immediately after he was saved and converted. He learned it through spiritual growth and experience. What were the keys to his present attitude of contentment? I believe he gives us the answer in chapter 1. In chapter 1, he writes about his circumstances, and he says in verse 12, But I want you to know, brethren, that the things which happened to me have actually turned out for the furtherance of the gospel. Now remember, what he's referring to here is the fact that he is unjustly incarcerated in Rome. He's under house arrest. He has been in Rome approximately two years when he writes this letter. Prior to that, he was under arrest back in the land of Israel, Caesarea by the sea, for maybe a couple years. So by this time, Paul has been unjustly held as a prisoner of Rome for four to five years. And it was easy for the Philippians to say, this is not good. Paul is the apostle to the Gentiles. He can't carry out his ministry because he's, he's incarcerated. What is God doing? The, 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 the plan of God to reach the Gentiles is being thwarted by these circumstances. And so Paul says, no, I want you to know that the things that have happened to me have actually turned out for the furtherance of the gospel. God's plan, God's uh, outreach through me has not been thwarted at all. It has become evident to the whole palace guard and to all the rest that my chains are in Christ. And most of the brethren in the Lord, having become confident by my chains, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preached Christ even from envy and strife, and some also from goodwill. We've got a textual thing here. Depending on your translation, it may be flip-flop. The former preached Christ from selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing to add affliction to my chains, the latter out of love, knowing I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, that is not accurately or inaccurate. That's not what Paul is saying. He's talking about motive here. He says, even if the motive isn't what it should be, Christ is preached, and you could add accurately, and in this I rejoice, yes, and will rejoice. Paul never rejoiced in inaccurate teaching about Jesus, false doctrine. But he said, listen, God is using my circumstances in ways far beyond what I could have imagined. And so here in these verses, we see that Paul had come to experientially trust in the sovereignty of God. God knows what he's doing even when we don't. God is in control. Nothing happens outside of his control. So we can be content with our lot in life even when life doesn't look like what we thought it should or thought it would look like. But that's not all. Verse 20. Paul says, According to my earnest expectation and hope that in nothing I shall be ashamed, but with all boldness as always, so now also Christ will be magnified in my body, whether by life or by death. In other words, whether I get out of here, uh, out from underneath house arrest, or they execute me, whichever, I just want to magnify Christ in my body, whether by life or by death, for to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Those verses give us the second ingredient that made up Paul's recipe for contentment. He boiled all of life down to the fundamental basic issue of magnifying Christ in life or in whatever circumstances all the way unto and including death. And beloved, if we learn these two principles, if we learn to trust in the sovereignty of God, especially when things are not looking like we think maybe they should be looking, and if we learn to boil life down to the fundamental basic issue of magnifying Christ, in every circumstance, then we will have learned the secret of being content. That's what Paul had learned. In our text in Philippians 4, 
Paul gives us more information about why he could be or how he could be content in any and all circumstances. He says in chapter 4, verse 10, But I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at last your care for me has flourished again, though you surely did care, but you lacked opportunity. Not that I speak in regard to need. In other words, I'm so grateful for your gift, but in my gratitude, don't take it to mean that I am just desperate and I want you to send me more. No, not that I speak in regard to need, for I have learned in whatever state I am to be content. I know how to, abound, how to be abased. I know how to abound everywhere and in all things. I have learned both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And what Paul is saying in that verse, verse 13, which is our text for this message, what Paul is saying in the context is this. I can handle any situation that comes my way because of the divine strength I receive from Jesus Christ. That's what the verse means. But it is so often ripped out of its context in an attempt to say things the verse really doesn't mean. Paul is not saying he can go out and do anything he decides to do. Don't quote verse 13 out of context. Paul isn't saying you can go out and become a brain surgeon. Some of us could never become brain surgeons, all right? Never. He's not saying, I could go out and become a brain surgeon, or I, I can become a concert pianist because Christ strengthens me. No, in the context, this is not so much an offensive strength as it is a defensive strength. Paul is saying, if we want to paraphrase verse 13, I can handle any circumstance that comes my way in life because of the divine strength I receive from the Lord Jesus Christ. I have learned to be content. That's verses 10 through 12. I have learned to be content because I have learned to draw upon divine strength to face life's difficulties. And that includes physical difficulty or emotional difficulty. Christ strengthens us to face our adversity. But let me hasten to add that oftentimes he doesn't strengthen us until we need the strength. The reason why I, why I want to emphasize this point is because sometimes we hear about an awful tragedy and we say something like this. I heard this so many times through the years and I understand, I appreciate it, but, but, but someone will say, I don't know if I could handle that if that happened to me. I don't know if I could handle handle it if I lost a loved one in a tragic accident, or I don't know if I could handle that circumstance. Well, the reason we feel that way is because God's pattern is to dispense divine strength when it's needed, not before it's needed. Christ strengthens us to face our adversity. And I want to illustrate this or elaborate on this from 2 Corinthians chapter 12. So please turn me Turn with me from Philippians 4 back to the left to what I think is the best commentary you could read on Philippians 4.13. 2 Corinthians chapter 12. A number of years ago, one of our young students, well, at that time he was a young student. He's not so young anymore. But uh, one of our young students had attended the conference and he came back was so excited Pastor Brian, you've got to listen to this message. It's, it's a tremendous message, and I did listen to it. it was very powerful. It was, the message was on the sufficiency of God's grace, and I want to pass along some of those thoughts to you because they, they are the best commentary I, I know of to describe what Paul is saying in Philippians 4, 
13. So 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Let me set the context for us. 2 Corinthians 10 through 13, those chapters, 2 Corinthians 10 through 13, is the most emotionally charged portion of Scripture to flow out of the heart of the Apostle Paul. It has been well said that in Romans, we see the mind of Paul, and here in 2 Corinthians, we see the heart of Paul. In this book, Paul writes about the most painful series of attacks on his character and ministry he ever had to deal with in his entire life. Now understand, Paul had spent 18 months pouring out his heart and soul and life to the Corinthians. He wrote four letters to this church. We have two of them in our Bibles. We call them 1st and 2nd Corinthians. They are actually 2nd and 4th Corinthians because 1st Corinthians was evidently not inspired. It wasn't preserved. We don't have it, but Paul alludes to it. Then he wrote another letter, which is 1st Corinthians in our Bible, but it was actually 2nd. Then he wrote a third letter. It's between our 1st and 2nd Corinthians. We don't have that one, but then he wrote what we call 2nd Corinthians, which was his fourth letter. He wrote four letters to this church. We have two of them in our Bibles. And in spite of all that Paul gave to this church, there were some in the church who felt like he wasn't worthy of their respect. His integrity had been undermined and maligned by some who were attacking him, and this hurt more than you can imagine. Paul suffered many things in his life, but nothing hurt like this situation did in his ministry. Back up just one chapter for a minute to chapter 11. 2 Corinthians 11, verse 23. You're familiar with this, this text. 2 Corinthians eleven twenty-three. Are they ministers of Christ? I speak as a fool. I am more. In labors more abundant, in stripes above measure, in prisons more frequently, in deaths often from the Jews. Five times I received 40 stripes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I've been in the deep, in journeys often, in perils of waters, in perils of robbers, in perils of my own countrymen, in perils of the Gentiles perils in the city, and perils in the wilderness, and perils in the sea, and perils among false brethren, in weariness and toil, in sleeplessness often, in hunger and thirst, in fastings often, in cold and nakedness. Those things obviously hurt deeply. But nothing hurt Paul like this situation in Corinth, where his integrity had been undermined and maligned by some who were attacking him. You see, the potential for deep hurt from those whom you have poured your heart and soul into is very great. That is why the hurt is so great when it comes from children or from a spouse. When you give your life to someone and they turn around and hurt you, the pain is intense. No disease is as painful as rejection. No injury is as painful as false accusations. No hurt is as painful as misrepresentation or betrayal or hatred. And that's what Paul was suffering as he pens 2 Corinthians chapters 10 through 13. Someone in this church was leading an insurrection against Paul, and it was all contrived out of nothing. Yet it hurt Paul deeply. I'll say it again. The potential to be hurt 
by the people you give yourself to is great. And that is why we see so many people who go to counselors today. Most people who go to counselors are there because they've been hurt by people. Paul understood that pain. So how did he handle it? He tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. This passage is so important because the principles in it apply to all of us when we experience painful situations or adversity of any kind. There are four lessons or four principles I want us to learn from this passage here in 2 Corinthians 12 as an elaboration of, as an explanation of Philippians 4.13. So here are the four principles. Number one, God humbles his children by means of suffering. Notice what Paul says there in verse 7. He says, And lest I should be exalted above measure by the abundance of of the revelations, a thorn in the flesh was given to me, a messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I be exalted above measure. Now what is Paul referring to when he mentions the abundance of the revelations given to me? Well, he could be referring to all the information, all the direct revelation that he received to write his letters, but in this context of chapter 12, I think he's referring to something else. You see, back in verses 1 through 6, he's just mentioned an incredible vision he had at some point in his life. He was caught up to the third heaven. That's an expression Jewish people use to refer to heaven itself because to them, this is heaven. In other words, the air around you that you breathe is not earth, so this is heaven. And then the second heaven is up there where you can see sort of the stars and the moon. That's heaven. And then beyond that is the third heaven where God dwells. So that was just the expression they used. And Paul says that he was caught up to the third heaven. He was caught up to paradise. He's the only man in the New Testament who had that experience. In fact, the resurrected Jesus appeared to Paul four different times privately and personally. Think about that. That's amazing. Jesus appeared to Paul four different times privately and personally. So it would have been very easy for Paul to overestimate his importance. That's what he's saying here in verse 7. Lest I should be exalted above measure. And then at the end of the verse, lest I be exalted above measure. It would have been very easy for Paul to be puffed up with pride. In the midst of a debate with Barnabas about theology, it would have been easy for Paul to say something like this. Yeah, I hear your point, but how many times has Jesus appeared to you? Well, none. Oh, that's what I thought, Barnabas. See, Paul could have really used those experiences to be intimidating if his attitude were wrong. What did you say, Titus? Have you been to heaven yet? I didn't think so. You see, Paul had so much privilege that he needed special grace to bring him to the highest, noblest Christian virtue of humility. That's what he's saying here in verse 7. Lest I should be exalted above measure by the abundance of the revelations, a thorn in the flesh was given to me, a messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I be exalted above measure. Paul learned what we need to learn. God humbles his children by means of suffering. The next time you go through a painful, unbearable situation, remember that. 
Suffering is a gift from God that we don't always cherish. It's also a gift that Satan doesn't want us to have when it results in what, it, in what happened in Paul's life. Satan never wants us to experience anything that will result in greater humility in us. Instead, Satan wants us to experience things that will result in damaging pride in our lives. Now, what was this thorn to which Paul refers? First of all, when you hear that word, don't think of a little horn like, thorn like what you see on a rose bush. Okay? Paul isn't saying, Lord, the pain is unbearable, so please remove this thorn out of my pinky finger, please. No, no. This word means a sharpened wooden shaft or stake, not stake like S-T-E-A-K, S-T-A-K-E, a stake that was used to impale somebody. And I believe the best way to translate this would be to have it read this way. A stake was given to me for my flesh. In other words, Paul is saying, my flesh continually wants to exalt itself, so the Lord has given me, given me a stake to impale my flesh, to keep my flesh in check, specifically my fleshly tendency toward pride. So what was this stake that impaled Paul's flesh? In verse 7, Paul says it was a messenger of Satan. The most common interpretation of this, if you consult the commentaries, is that this was an eye disease that Paul may have had, probably had, or some other physical infirmity, and that is certainly a possibility. But one of the things to keep in mind about this verse is that Paul calls this a messenger. Angelos. This word is used 188 times in the New Testament. And all the other 187 times that it is used, it refers to a person. An angelic person or a human person. So when Paul uses it here, don't exclude that possibility. He may be referring to a person. It is possible that Paul is referring to a person who was dispatched out of the kingdom of darkness to make life miserable for Paul. And if that's what Paul is referring to, then he's probably referring to the ringleader of the group that was undermining his integrity and ministry in Corinth. Now, we, we can't be dogmatic on that view, but it's a possibility. I believe that God has left it in general terms and didn't specify so that the principles set forth in this passage, we will see, apply to any painful situation any of us may go through in life. Whatever it was, Paul calls it a messenger of Satan. It's very popular today in Christian circles, and you know this, it's very popular in Christian circles to believe that our job is to go around trying to get rid of Satan and demons. Bind Satan, bind demons, cast them out. But do you realize the implications of this passage? Do you realize what this is saying? God even uses the efforts of Satan and demons to accomplish his perfect will in the lives of his children. Listen, beloved, don't spend your time worrying about Satan and demons. Just concentrate on the Lord. God causes all things to work together for good, and that even includes Satan's attacks against us and the, the attacks of demons against us. 
God can even use those attacks to accomplish positive purposes in our lives. And that is exactly what was happening here. Paul says, a messenger of Satan, this thorn, this stake in my flesh. Why did God allow this? Here's the answer. To ensure that Paul wasn't lifted up with pride, which would have resulted in uselessness. We all need things in our lives like this. All of us. To keep us where we are most useful. Here's lesson number two. Principle number two from this text. God is really and ultimately the only one to whom we can go in our suffering. Notice what Paul says in verse 8. Concerning this thing, I pleaded with the Lord three times that it might depart from me. Paul didn't like what he was going through. He wanted relief. And, And if you've ever been in this kind of painful situation, then you can understand that. So Paul prayed. He says, I sought the Lord three times. He realized that God was the only one to whom he could go. Paul understood the fact that even though Satan was involved in this situation, and he just said that in verse 7, God was ultimately the one who was really in control. So again I say, Paul didn't bother trying to rebuke Satan. And he didn't go to friends, even though our friends certainly can be helpful in our struggles. Paul went first and directly to God. And don't you believe that's what God wants of us at times like this? That's the purpose behind all of this. But today when we have problems, we so often try to short-circuit God's purposes by running anywhere and everywhere except to God. Beloved, realize that God allows pain in your life to drive you into communion with him. We like to have control of things. We like to have answers for things. But God allows things in our lives that we can't control. And God allows things in our lives that we don't have answers for in order that it might draw us to him. God uses suffering to humble us. He uses it to draw us into a deeper intimacy with him. Now, we certainly can use support and encouragement and strength from others. There's no doubt about that. The Bible has a great deal to say about that. You've read the New Testament, one another's. Pray for one another, encourage one another. Those are so important. But listen, there are times when no one is available. There are times when no one is aware of what we're going through. And there are times when people are aware, but they just don't understand because they've not gone through the same thing. Paul had times like that. So he learned to draw on the strength of Christ. Look at what he said in 2 Timothy. You can hold your place here, but just turn over for a minute to 2 Timothy chapter 4. Paul says in verse 16, some extremely sad words here. Verse 16, at my first defense, no one stood with me, but all forsook me. May it not be charged against them. I mean, I take it he's referring to Christians there because why would he assume that non-Christians would stand up for him? So 
all, we, we don't know all the circumstance here, but all of his Christian friends, or maybe the better way to say it, none of his Christian friends were there f- with him, for him, for his first defense. He's probably referring to his first defense before Caesar. That would be intimidating. Paul had to go it alone. Verse 17, he says, But the Lord stood with me and strengthened me so that the message might be preached fully through me and that all the Gentiles might hear. Also, I was delivered out of the mouth of the lion. So again, I want to emphasize, support and and encouragement and strength from others is a great thing. But God is really and ultimately the only one to whom we can go in our suffering. Now back to 2 Corinthians 12. There's a third principle here in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, and it is this. God alone can provide grace for the suffering. You know this story here in 2 Corinthians 12. God did not remove the problem from Paul's life. He didn't take it away. Verse 9, here was the answer. And he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. For my strength is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, most gladly I will rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. God's answer was not to remove the problem, but rather to increase grace. Learn that truth now. God promises that you will have trouble. That's one of the promises we don't like to claim. John 16, in this world you will have trouble, Jesus said. God promises that you will have trouble, but he also promises that his grace will be sufficient. God wants to put his grace on display, so at times he allows things in our lives that will put his grace on display. Acts 14, says the early church experienced abundant grace. John 1.16 says believers receive from Christ the fullness of grace upon grace. In Romans 5.2, it says we stand in grace. Twice in Ephesians, it says we have received the riches of his grace. James says God gives a greater grace. Peter says God gives a manifold, multifaceted, multicolored grace. God doesn't skimp when he gives out grace. We are saved by grace, we grow in grace, we serve by means of grace, we can endure because of grace, and we are kept by grace. Look back at chapter 9 of this same letter, 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 8. Paul says, And God is able to make all grace abound toward you, that you always, having all sufficiency in all things, may have an abundance for every good work. Did you notice all the superlatives in that verse? Maybe we should count them. And God is able to make all grace abound toward you, that you always, having all sufficiency in all things, may have an abundance for every good work. Eight times it is stated in one way or another. Eight times. God doesn't skimp when he gives out grace. We have an all-sufficient God who works all things together for good 
says Romans 8, 28. He has given us an, an all-sufficient scripture, which is perfect, endures forever, rejoices the heart, and enlightens the eyes, says Psalm 19. And in that word, God gives us pure wisdom from above, which confounds all the wisdom of men and reduces it to foolishness, says 1 Corinthians 1. And we have the Lord Jesus Christ, in whom all fullness dwells, and in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, according to Colossians, in whom we have all things pertaining to life and godliness, says Peter, and through whom we have become partakers of the divine nature, says Peter, and through whom we can do all things, says Philippians 4.13, and we have the Holy Spirit of God dwelling within, strengthening the inner man, says 1 Corinthians 6. On top of all of that, we have sufficient grace, says 2 Corinthians 12, and yet, when troubles come, so many Christians turn to the friends of Freud. You see any contradiction in that? I'm thankful for godly pastors and counselors who turn people to the true treasure and away from the trash because, frankly, Christians often turn to broken cisterns that hold no water when God has promised us the fountain of living water. Now back to chapter 12 for the fourth lesson or principle that Paul learned and sets forth in this text. Principle number four, lesson number four, God perfects power out of weakness. He says in verse 9, Jesus said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, most gladly, I will rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. The suffering which humbles us in weakness and brings us to the end of our own resources becomes the means of releasing God's power in our lives. No one is too weak to be powerful, but some are too strong to be powerful. Let me say that again. No one is too weak to be powerful, but some are too strong to be powerful. In our weakness, God's power is displayed. That's why Paul could be content in any and every circumstance. That's why Paul could say in Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. That is, I can handle any situation in life that God in his sovereign purposes allows in my life because of all sufficient grace and the strength of Christ. Paul had learned to handle every situation through Christ who strengthens us. So when trouble or suffering comes, and you know it will come, right, beloved? You know that. You know it. I'm not a prophet nor the son of a prophet, and I work for a nonprofit organization, but let me promise you, trouble will come. You live long enough, trouble will come. And when it does, remember these four principles. Number one, because of the tendency of our flesh Toward pride, God humbles his children by means of suffering. Number two, God is really and ultimately the only one to whom we can go in our suffering. His purpose is to draw us into intimate, deep communion. Number three, ultimately God alone can provide grace for the suffering. And when God does that, it puts his glory on display and should result in praise. And principle number four, God perfects power out of weakness. And because of these 
life-changing truths. The passage closes as it does. Paul says at the end of verse 9, Because of this promise, my grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, most gladly, I will rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in needs, in persecutions, in distresses. For Christ's sake, for when I am weak, then I am strong. Paul would have made a lousy prosperity preacher, you know it? A lousy positive thinking preacher. But when you face hardship, I hope you will be able to say what he says here in these verses. A.W. Tozer once said this. It's not a direct quote, but it's become a famous quote. It's not exactly word for word what he said, but it expresses the idea. It is doubtful that God can use any man greatly until he has hurt him deeply. Do you want to be greatly used of God? Then learn these principles. Learn these truths. The songwriter put it this way. He giveth more grace when the burdens grow greater. He sendeth more strength when the labors increase. To added affliction, he addeth his mercy. To multiplied trials, his multiplied peace. When we have exhausted our store of of endurance, when our strength has failed ere the day is half done, when we reach the end of our hoarded resources, our Father's full giving has only begun. His love has no limits. His grace has no measure. His power no boundary known unto men. For out of his infinite riches in Jesus, he giveth and giveth and giveth again. One day Spurgeon was going home after a day at the Metropolitan Tabernacle in London. And as he walked, he was thinking about this passage here in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. As he molded around in his mind, thoughts came to him that only a guy like Spurgeon could think. But as he was thinking through it, he came beside the Thames River in London, and he imagined a little fish swimming through the Thames, saying to itself in some soliloquy, Oh, if I keep drinking this water every day, I'm liable to drink the Thames dry. To which Father Thames replied, Drink away, little fish. My stream is sufficient for you. And then Spurgeon said, I imagined a little mouse in Joseph's granary in Egypt after all the grain had been stored. And the mouse said to itself, Oh, if I keep eating all of this grain, I'll eat it all and then I'll starve to death. To which Joseph replied, Eat away, little mouse. There is plenty. And then he said, I imagined a mountain climber who had come to the pinnacle of that great mountain, of the great mountain, and when he reached that apex, he looked into the vast eternal sky and thought to himself, I better hold my breath lest I exhaust it all. To which the Creator boomed out of heaven, breathe away, O man, breathe away. That's a graphic way to describe the inexhaustible resource of God's sufficient grace. And now we could see why 
Paul says in Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Paul had learned to be content because he had learned that contentment is not determined by what a person has, but rather by his or her relationship with Jesus Christ. May we learn that lesson too by God's grace. Let's bow our heads together here in the last two or three minutes that remain and just contemplate for just a few moments, meditate on the tremendous truths to which we've been exposed in God's Word from Philippians 4, 2 Corinthians 12, and look at your own life and think about where you are at right now. Maybe you're in a season of relative ease and things are going well, and you need to thank God for that. Paul says in Philippians 4, I've learned how to handle prosperity and adversity, so no reason to feel guilty if things are going well in life. Thank God for that and handle it well by God's grace. But maybe you're going through a really tough time right now, a time of suffering mentally, physically, emotionally, relationally. Then learn these four lessons about the sufficiency of God's grace. And if you are in a good time right now, don't forget that if you live long enough, there are hard times because we live in a fallen world. We live in a sin-cursed world. People we love die. We die. People we love get sick, get hurt. We get sick, we get hurt. Tragedy strikes. It's the nature of life on planet Earth. So when those times hit, can we say with Paul, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I, I can handle any situation in life, not, not by myself, but because of divine strength and sufficient grace. So let's ask the Lord to really give us the strength, give us the ability to grasp these principles so that when hardship hits, Maybe tomorrow, maybe next month, next year, maybe five, ten years out, but when it hits, so that we're ready to respond in a way that puts the grace of God on display. And Father, we pray that you would grant us to be worthy of such a goal in life, to as we are often exhorted to walk worthy of our calling. Lord, I know as I look out here on the people gathered here that some are walking through really, really tough times in life. Things that just seem unbearable, impossible to walk through. And others are walking through times in which it's just your hand of blessing is on them financially or health-wise or relationally, and they have so much to be thankful for and so many reasons to express gratitude, and may they do that. But whatever our lot in life, whatever our situation, may we be able to say with Paul in Philippians 4 that we have learned in whatever state to be content, to handle adversity, to handle prosperity, to handle defeat in life, to handle success in life. Whatever in your sovereign plan 
you bring our way. May we represent Jesus Christ well and draw on sufficient grace and divine strength. We pray this for Jesus' sake and in his name. Amen.